Here's uh, two poems by Britt Posmer. First one is called This. This, after all of the fight has gone out, there is this, the invitation to extraordinary tenderness. That's such good instruction for this practice. After all of the fight has gone out, there is this, the invitation to extraordinary tenderness. And then this one's called more. There is something more than happiness. I do not know how to name it, but it makes my cells shine. And I do not call it light, but a secret envy I share with the sun, a brighter star in which we disappear transparent. So imagine session practice is like going through a car wash. Now, whenever I think of these metaphors, I think, oh, imagine session being like a ninja creamy, or imagine session being like a jackhammer. Imagine session being like a lawnmower. You can make it all into a, a workable metaphor, but we'll go with car wash. You put your car through the car wash, and many people take their car into the car wash because they're embarrassed of what the neighbors think. And that's actually relevant for our practice because in some ways we do this knowing that a suffering being emits suffering. To the degree to which I don't know who I am, that is being emitted into the world and those around me. So to spare our neighbors and our friends from our dirty car, or maybe out of vanity, take the car to the car wash, and maybe to one degree or another, you appreciate that underneath everything, whether it's an old car, a car you no longer are super fond of, it's more attractive. You appreciate it more when it's clean. And you appreciate it more when the accretions of mud and smudge are, are wiped off. I was thinking of those jets did you know what I'm talking about? The self-do car wash and you spray them on your hubcaps. And it's amazing the layers of dirt that get on the hubcaps. You didn't know how shiny they used to be, especially if you bought your car used. Or if you're like me, one time I went five years without washing my car. Somebody shook their head. But then I was going to sell it, so I had to wash it. And I couldn't believe how shiny the hubcaps were. There's a way in which the dirt of our minds is so caked on, we don't even know what it would be like to not have it there. The dirt, the cake of fixed belief has so long been there, it's indistinguishable from the body of the car as far as we're concerned. Or like, the windshield, if you'd go a long time without washing your windshield, you really acclimate to it. You learn to see through it. You, the diminished hues of life, the limited visibility, you actually acclimate to it. Then if you wash that windshield, oh my God, it's everything crisp and clear. And this is the situation that we come to in session. 
beliefs so long there, we don't even know we have them. All manner of, of self-definition. Habit patterns so long there, we take it for granted that it's a habit. It's not a habit pattern, that's just who I am. But no, it's a habit pattern. So Sashin, Sashin is a heart wash. One period, even one moment of Zazen is a heart wash. Yeah. There's an old Soto Zen saying that says, one inch Buddha, one inch sitting. One inch of sitting, one inch Buddha. And you could translate that as one moment of full presence, one moment, no suffering. But we're luxuriating in an extended period of this practice. What an amazing opportunity. There are different elements to this heart wash. I like the word surrender. All words are limited. But surrender is, I think, useful. Another old Japanese Zen saying is that the snake does not know it's a snake until it's put into the bamboo tube. With the limitations of the schedule, with the limits on our activity, we see how much resistance to life lives within us. It seems to be the American way to develop a life that is complete convenience from beginning to, to end, from waking to sleep. Now with remote work, it's almost perfected. Well, who knows what's next with AI? To not have to go with anyone else's preference whatsoever in some ways is the new American dream, to do exactly what I want whenever I want it, how I want to. But here we're in the tube. And there are many life situations where that false kind of freedom is just completely taken away. Right. So this is a training a study of surrender, non-opposition to the forms. When it's time to sit, we just come sit. You practice just dropping your preference. You wanted to linger in work practice a little bit longer, you drop it. You put down the tools, you do the next thing. Surrender is not passivity. The 
Soto school, which is largely the flavor of practice here, has at different times in history been criticized for being a passive spiritual practice because one spends so much time sitting in silence. One is bowing and just taking the shape of the practice schedule. It can be done passively. Don't do it passively. True surrender is you actively choose to take this form of Zazen or to be present in Oriyoki or to put your hands together like this when it's time to put your hands together like this. The interesting thing is it only works on you when you don't want to do it. So if you're anything like me and you came here or you come here and you're like, I don't want to do any of this bullshit. That's really good because there is something that can be surrendered in opposition that you don't need to have. When you learn to do it here, you learn to do it everywhere. When you can be one with this particularly formed moment that we have agreed to, it's the same thing when you're on the highway in bumper to bumper traffic and it's 100 degrees out. You can surrender to that. Maybe it can be the same thing in times of deep sickness, same thing in times of relationships being dissonant. So actively choosing, not passively floating. It's so important and it's not always easy to know which one we're doing. And further, the limits on our activity allow us to see our impulses, our escape hatches, our compulsivities without acting on them. What is the value of that? In a realm like many of us, or even most of us, dwell in, we can act on our impulses almost without limit. But beyond the fact that that's going to be taken away as we age, for example, as the body changes, there is something in us that longs to be free from the compulsive. There is something in us that feels a low-level, ongoing disappointment that we so much function as an automaton. So the limits on the activity are an aspect of studying the self. One of the things about those um, automatic car washes is once you're on, you have to go all the way through. Pretty sure you can't just like slam on your brakes. Generally, nobody wants to get out in the middle of a car wash. Definitely, people want to get out in the middle of the process of waking up. Definitely, people want to get out whenever they can at different times in the process of session. 
non-opposition extends to not opposing the waves of texture that are body, feeling, and mind. The only way to do that is to recognize that it's all waves of texture. There's no solidity in here. There's no experienced solidity in here. There's no experienced solidity. There's seeming object stability. But we pay attention and we see that this is flow. Mind freezes, mind conceives, mind makes thing out of that which is flow. We're parting from that mind which takes flow into things so that we can be with this life as waves of texture. Then you can not have opposition. Flowing through. The element of silence in session. It's really profoundly quiet in this place. And at some point it's as if the silence of the Zendo is doing Zazen, and we are just like a vessel for that to shine through. But on the initial level, silence is a mirror. Related to seeing the impulsivities, the habits of, of action that we want to take that we can't, and what happens what we're brought up against. Silence allows us to see what our mind is. Now, the theory is that what comes up in your mind during session is not caused by session, it's caused by your mind. That is, it may be amplified by these conditions, and that's the point, but it's your own mind, your own state of being, your own way of thinking, your own relationship to life that is reflected back to you. Polishing the heart is an image, for example, you find in like Sufism, you find in Chan, Zen, many, many traditions talked about the process of spirituality as a polishing of the heart. So just how loud judgmental mind is only really becomes clear in silence. Just how much I proclaims its importance only really becomes clear when we stop and are quiet.
broadly speaking, the Dharma view is what needs to be cleared is that which makes friction. Or to phrase it in a way that we can engage as uh, an inquiry, what is making this, what is making this friction? What obstructs frictionlessness? That might be as good a word as any for what, where practice takes us. A frictionless relationship with life, with this life, external life, not two. What obstructs that? The beautiful things about Dharma and this process is that doesn't have to remain a mystery. It might even be a comforting belief to feel like I suffer and I'm unhappy and I don't know why and nobody could ever figure out why. I'm just one of God's bad apples or I have bad karma or fill in the blank. There's a, there's a million versions of that. But the Dharma actually um, cannot and does not accept that view. Friction has a cause because our true nature is frictionless, bright, mind. Friction is caused. It's, it's, there's something, there is a, it's either conscious or it's not, but there's some grasping, there's some identity, there's some fixed view. And yet that which makes friction is that which leads to freedom. You could say grasping is the mother of love. We really understand the ways in which we bind ourselves. Truly, we bind ourselves. We understand the ways we do that. And that's the beginning of the unbinding. And that's that's the source of a different way of being. So it's good to have friction. Session has the element of repetition. We do the same thing over and over and over. And we see that the mind actually believes it's the same thing over and over and over. We see how it's so easy to fall into the trance of familiarity. the tendency to go on autopilot, to be partially or not really engaged. And this is good because life is like that. We do the same damn things every day, basically. Basically. Sometimes I lament how limited the ritual of life really is. There's only so many things you can do. You can just move bits around and a little bit more here, a little bit less there, but basically 
human life is a ritual that repeats itself. But it doesn't. But it doesn't. That's a function of, of deep attention. That's a function of caring enough not to suffer familiarity's burden. So we train in sincerity. Sincerity means a constancy of, of engagement. You put your heart into it when it's hot and you're tired. You put your heart into it when it's blissful. You put your heart into it when you wish you were somewhere else. You put your heart into it when you love it and think it's the best thing ever. You just keep putting your heart into it and you try to work on those places that you withdraw. As practitioners, one thing that equanimity really means, it doesn't mean, oh, I'm so peaceful all the time. Nothing ruffles me. <coughs> equanimity really means that we engage life, whether we like it or not. We don't check out just because it doesn't feel good. And that makes so much possible. On one level, that's just character work, which is, it's very beneficial character work. But it makes other things possible in the Dharma. Another element of the heart wash is the together energy. This is there are many traditions that do not practice like this. And I feel that one can attune to its benefit and not just let it be background scenery. It's, this is an asocial environment. We do not socialize during session. And yet there are so many people all around us Practicing. Each of us is contributing something to the shared field of energy. Chosen a long time ago, she told a story of um, doing sanzen, and someone came in and was having a particular kind of sexual fantasy. And she said that three-fourths of the people that came into sons and reported the same or a similar fantasy, that the thought was floating around the room. <laughs> now, on one hand, we can't help what we think entirely. We can mostly help what we think. We will come to that point. But thoughts think themselves into existence. It's karma. It's a reverber reverberation of what we've thought before. Poof! And there's a shared field. And so on one hand, you can't, do it, you can't do it perfect. No one's ever done this practice perfect. On the other hand, you could notice that this is a shared field. And maybe I don't want to indulge in this for the sake of these beings. Yeah? The materialist fantasy is that mind is something that's contained here. That's a fantasy. It's a comforting fantasy because then I feel like this is my private uh, uh, 
scot-free zone. What I do here doesn't affect anybody else. That's wrong. So we have this, this shared field that we are aligning. If you pay attention to the chants and the rituals, so much about it is this very powerful style of aligning our intention, aligning our energy, aligning our bodies so that is possible. There's also the great benefit of being irritated by other people. It's so much of what needs to be truly seen, owned, accepted, and let go of is judgment of other people. That's an option in life, despite what some people say. Some people say, no, you always, everyone is to some degree judgmental. That's not really true. As practitioners, we can be free of judgment. We might have discernment. We might hang out with Jill rather than Jane because we, we have our affinities. But we can be free of judgment. Many of the precepts are about that. Stop judging. See the perfection. That's a North Star. Not an easy thing to do. So sometimes we get notes in leadership. Oh, from a participant, so-and-so is breathing really heavy, or I don't think they've showered this week. Can you please move me in the zendo? And you're in this dilemma, like, mm, maybe we shouldn't. Maybe it'd be better to just let you sit there. And then in session, there, there are teachings like these and reminders of what practice is and what it can be. And at some point, opportunity to meet briefly with teacher. So the Buddha was once asked something like, can you tell me the benefit of the Dharma here and now without recourse to future lifetimes or without even telling me what it might be like 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now? now especially in India, there at that time, it's still true, there are many systems of spirituality that had different presentations about what life and death were. And as we know, many spiritualities are not about the here and now. They're really not pointing to heaven on earth. They're pointing to heaven after earth. They're pointing to something that is better when this is over with, if we've done a good job or whatever the, the recipe is. Yeah. So this person is saying, I don't want anything like that. What is the benefit of the Dharma here and now in this lifetime? And in essence, the Buddha's reply was that this is a moment-by-moment -moment practice of liberation. Dogen Zenji, in addressing the what seems like a contradiction to the mind of freedom here and now, 
and gradual development in the Dharma, he said something like, uh, bodies and minds appear and disappear without abiding. Nothing is stuck at this moment. It's all functioning absolutely freely. Even the thoughts that might say, no, it's not. It's not functioning freely. It's fill in the blank. Those are functioning freely. They arise, exist, they disappear frictionlessly. Moment by moment, a body appears and disappears without abiding. Time is an orientation towards being. As you know, when you're really absorbed in something, your experience of time changes. It's not that your experience is secondary to what a clock tells you. Your experience is time. When we really let go, when we give up waiting, anticipating, those are two things that are like traps for meditators. Even as we become more settled, we're waiting for that thing to happen. We're anticipating. And we're just enough leaning into the future that we're exiled from the Garden of Eden. So we're letting go of time. Another way of saying that is moment by moment, a body and mind appear and disappear without abiding. But then he said, and yet the power of practice matures. It actually is a contradiction. There is no abiding. And yet, if we are sincere, by the end of the week, your zazen will be richer, deeper, generally speaking. But in a way, the liberation here and now is the more important thing because the heaven afterwards, the heaven later attitude is so deep in us that we can't accept that we might be free right now. The Dharma is of benefit here and now. Every moment is cocked and loaded with potential suffering. Mind is a space pregnant always with creativity. And that pregnant creativity is always ready to take birth as suffering deluded thought. Right? Every one of us is totally free right now to start complaining about what's happening. We're totally free to get into a struggle with our own bodies. We're totally free to engage in past stories or make up new stories about being inadequate, about other people being adequate, inadequate. We can pick any doomsday narrative we like and start believing it. We are totally, absolutely, utterly free. So free, in fact, that nobody, including the Buddha, 
nobody, including God, can stop us. Mind is pregnant with the potential to suffer. So the other side of that is every moment is an invitation not to separate from what is. Just right now, don't separate. Be one with exactly this moment. No push or pull. Sensation is exactly sensation. No more, no less. Feeling is exactly feeling. No more, no less. But from mind's creativity arises this split world of I am a subject and I'm going to view these myriad things that are impinging on me. I don't like that my armpits are a little sweaty. I don't like that the light is too shiny. I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like it. Could be the other way. It still actually is splitting. Meaning it could still be positive. It's still actually duality. The myriad offenders of life make us into a defender. And there's no end to it. But we return to the primal source where we find the meaning of all things. And the meaning is that this moment of not to. So the Dharma is an invitation in every moment to not separate. A benefit of practice is simply interrupting negative actions of mind, speech, and body. A benefit of practice is keeping the precepts well, keeping the guidelines well. I want to talk a little bit about the development of concentration. It's very frustrating, the limitations of language. I know when I hear the word concentration, I just go, oh, I should probably be like this, furrowing my brow and trying really hard. I wonder if you can relate to yourself impersonally as far as the skill building of the Dharma. That's an aspect of what we're doing. We're building skills. We're training the mind. Impersonally means I don't spiral into the inner critic or I don't spiral into how amazingly spiritual I am when it's going well, but we relate to this just as a process. It's 
It's a basic art. And what comes up is just the response to the application of that art. It doesn't mean I'm bad because my mind wanders. It doesn't even mean I'm not a good meditator. It's just part of the process. So mind wanders. Strictly speaking, thoughts arise. That's not your deepest mind. Thoughts arise. Attention tends to follow thought. That's called attachment. What we mean by attachment is attention, that elusive but tangible thing that can become a bright and vivid expanse, tends to get snagged on different things. For most people, it gets snagged, and it's a cultural conditioning, on our thoughts. We are attached to our thoughts. Yeah, it's like... You know, my cats sometimes scratch on me, and they don't mean to, but their claws get stuck in my clothes, and I'm kind of walking around, there's a cat flopping from my shirt. That's what happens for us. We don't intend to, but we get caught in them. And that happens over and over, and we jump from one to the other. Or attention gets captured by a body sensation. Or anything like that. Now, all of this is, of course, natural. Generally, the freshest thing that arises in the environment we're conditioned to respond to that stimulus, to turn attention towards it. Part of why monasteries are boring is to reduce stimulus. That's kind of a joke. But. <laughs> why the environment is simple is so that there is not so much novel stimulus. There's not that much going on externally. It's definitely in session. So that that attention going towards the newest novel stimulus is reduced. So we're working with disengaging attention from unintentionally just latching on to objects. Everybody knows, knows what I mean by that. You're pulling your attention out of your thoughts towards the method that you're working with. And we do that relentlessly. Relentless is a way to describe it. Devoted is a way to describe it. It is an re unrelenting action, but if we're in touch with what it's really about, it can have a flavor of devotion. And we just keep reconnecting attention and method. And more and more, it's just like this. And then eventually it's like this. Oh. And then there's not even two things.
all states are impermanent. Someone could put in the time to so master concentration that they almost never get distracted. From the Zen point of view, that's missing the point. Well, what matters is that this staying, this restingness, this restingness, this increasing steady contact, becoming restingness, becoming effortlessness, becoming not too. It's the function of just relentless devotion, of just keep, you just keep applying it. It's an impersonal process. You don't have to be a good girl in order to deserve samadhi. You don't have to be a spiritual person to enter these absorptive states. It's an impersonal process. You just have to do the art, is what I'm trying to get at. Now, if you're not keeping the precepts in your life, meaning the heart has a low-level disturbance because ethics are murky, it's going to be hard for this to... It's going to be a lot harder, at least. But even that gets worked out in the sitting. Tori Zenji, Hakuin Zenji's exalted disciple, we used to or maybe still do have a calligraphy by him hanging in the founder's room. He talked about the meritorious states that arise from increasing depth of concentration. Concentration, absorption, leads to bliss. Everybody loves bliss. There is no organism that does not, is not opened and is not, does not desire bliss. And when it arises, fold it in. Don't ignore it, but fold it into the practice. Just like if you're, you're, you have dough, and let's say you kind of add some more olive oil. You got the dough and you just work that, you work it in just by continuing the motion, but you're not ignoring the olive oil. You are, you are consciously working it in. When bliss arises, whether that's bodily, whether that's more um, energetic, spiritual, there's different flavors of bliss, fold it in. If you grasp on it, you know what happens. You've heard the trope of Dharma teachers who say, don't grasp on bliss. It's not about that. Don't grasp, fold it in. When you fold in the bliss, Buddha called it sukha, yeah, well-being, in contradistinction to dukkha. When you fold in the sukha, it's, it softens you in ways that are hard to describe, and so the absorption goes further. So bliss is one of the meritorious states. Not merit meaning you get a gold badge because you're the best zenster. But merit meaning you have applied the art and it's impersonal. 
Nobody deserves or doesn't deserve it. They just either do or don't do the work and in accord with your elemental composition sooner or later. There's the meritorious state of non-conceptuality. <laughs> to see without thoughts in the way. To hear without thoughts in the way. To feel without thoughts in the way. It's one level of non-conceptuality. It's one level of wiping the windshield clean. To walk into a room and don't, not have a single thought about somebody. To not have a single thought about, are people thinking about me? We call it stillness. There's a lot that can be said and is said about this. But I think most importantly, when we know, we really know that thought is largely an alienation from our experience, then we know that. When we know the intimate world, when we know the world of just naked texture, when we enter the world of, of feeling texture of life, then the mind is put in perspective. It becomes more clear it needs to be a tool rather than the boss. Right now, exhale completely and just let your mind be still. As if you were pulling a plug on a sink. Let it all just drain out. Be someone who knows nothing. Figuring out who's solving nothing. So non-conceptuality. There are more meritorious states. Maybe come back to those later. I want to begin winding down by letting one of the great Zen ancestors speak and read and maybe say a little bit about what Hongzhi and Master Hongzhir has to say. This person wrote in the 11th century. I don't actually know if he wrote or if his talks were just transcribed. This text and its flavor is central to the lineage of Great Vow. The, the sense of what Zen practice is is strongly influenced by the spirit of practice that's uh, expressed here. Hongzhir says, the field of boundless emptiness is what exists from the very beginning.
you must purify, cure, grind down, or brush away all the tendencies you have fabricated into apparent habits. Then you can reside in the clear circle of brightness. You can see right here that this is not about some rigid holding to one method versus another. It's not about the technology. Because he says, well, you can purify, cure, grind down, or brush away. Meaning, method is very important. I was told that Guogu emphasized method and fidelity to method, and that's very important. But deeper than method is the spirit of the heart. It's the heart that wishes to let go and know the truth. Without that, method is just mechanism. You must purify, cure, grind down, or brush away all the tendencies, of course, tendencies of thought, tendency, mental actions. You have fabricated into apparent habits. Then you can reside in the clear circle of brightness. Utter spaciousness has no image. Upright independence does not rely on anything. Just expand and illuminate the original truth unconcerned by external conditions. Human beings have always been complainers. Human beings have always decided that someone else is at fault for my unhappiness. Whether they're rich human beings or not. Whether they're this group or that group. Human beings are always trying to offload the onus. Just expand and illuminate the original truth unconcerned by external conditions. Now, in a way, we could say the personality can't do that. Much of the Dharma, you hear it and you feel like, I can't do that. There's no way I can just be one with this moment. And that's actually true. You can't. You have to let go of you. I let go of me. The Dharma does the deep Dharma, not the ordinary self. This core of bright spaciousness that is our nature can expand despite whether it's hot or cold, whatever. Hongzhi continues, Accordingly, we are told to realize that not a single thing exists. In this field, birth and death do not appear. The deep source, transparent down to the bottom, can radiantly shine and can respond unencumbered to each speck of dust without becoming its partner. We can be frictionless. And not only that we can be frictionless, truly we are frictionless, moment by moment. Mind and body appear and disappear. Nothing sticks. We're free to always ruminate on something from the past. We're always free to do that. But this frictionless. The subtlety of seeing and hearing transcends mere colors and sounds. The whole affair functions without leaving traces and mirrors without obscurations. 
very naturally mind and dharmas emerge and harmonize. Dharmas in this context means just all things. Why are they called dharmas? Because each thing is an expression of truth. It's not just a thing. But it's talking about things. Breath and awareness are not two separate things colliding that we're trying to mash together into one. An ancient said that non-mind enacts and fulfills the way of non-mind. Enacting and fulfilling the way of non-mind, finally you can rest. That's really quite a burden to always walk around in a storm of judgments, opinions, should-haves, could-haves. And it wouldn't even be worth saying anything about except that we don't have to live like that. Enacting and fulfilling the way of non-mind, finally you can rest. Not that you become a zombie. This isn't a, some kind of spiritual lobotomy. But the relationship to thinking mind changes 180 degrees. Identity with thinking mind falls away. The necessity of it, the function of it, falls into proportion. He continues, Proceeding, you are able to guide the assembly. If you take this out of the context of like Zen tradition, somebody who is actually able to be a leader and work with people and contribute to society has to have some freedom from their fixed views. Otherwise, they just bring forward bias. Otherwise, they can't encounter people. Otherwise, they can't receive life. In some sense, this isn't something mystical. This is just about being a functioning human being. Functioning maybe freer and freer as a human being. Last line, with thoughts clear, sitting silently, wander into the center of the circle of wonder. This is how you must penetrate and study. With thoughts clear, sitting silently, wander into the center of the circle of wonder. Yes, please wander into the center of the circle of wonder with me. And let's keep wandering. Thank you.